Human Factors and Ergonomics Hub, a series of educational podcasts that showcase the connection between human capabilities and good work design. Brought to you by the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society of Australia. Hi, I'm Sharon Todd. Thanks for joining us at the HFE Hub. Today, I'm chatting with Professor Gillian Dorian. Jill Dorian is the Dean of Research for the University of South Australia, Justice and Society, and Professor of Psychology. She has a PhD in Psychology and a Master of Biostatistics. Her primary research experience is in human sleep, biological rhythms and performance, and she primarily works with the Australian rail and healthcare industries, investigating fatigue, workload, operational performance, safety and health. Jill Dorian is one of our keynote speakers at the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society conference being held in November this year. Jill, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you on board talking about um, your work and your research. And I wanted to ask you initially how you became interested in Human Factors and Ergonomics. Thanks, Sharon. Well, um, I became firstly interested in research when um, I was doing my honours in psychology and I had the opportunity to work in a sleep laboratory and I was really fascinated by um, the research um, and the ability to try and understand what, what happens to people in the, you know their body and in their mind when they're uh, sleep deprived. And then after that, when I did my PhD, I had the opportunity to work with train drivers and, and look at the effects of fatigue and sleep whilst I'm train driving and that really opened up my eyes to to a whole new world of industry-led and industry-embedded research, which I got completely addicted to. And um, and I think that the, the important questions that come out of industry are necessarily complex and, and necessarily multidisciplinary. And I think that the human factors ergonomics umbrella covers a lot of disciplines and that makes it a really natural home for the kind of research that I'm really passionate about. So I'm really excited to be um, coming to the conference. So what are you working on currently or where do you work currently and what do you do? So I'm uh, the Dean of Research for UniSA in the unit, which is um, UniSA Justice and Society. So we have psychology, social work, social policy and law and um, professor of psychology and most of my work is about um, shift workers and trying to keep them healthy and safe through their careers in shift work. Tell me about some of the work that you've been working on then. The the most recent project I've been working on has been with water utilities and we've been looking at wearables uh, and trying to examine the potential for wearables to support safety um, for these workers who have long hours and they often are on call. So there's fatigue risk there, but also interestingly, there's a lot of work um, when it comes to things like pipe repair that's outside and and is open to things like, um, you know, heat and heavy physical work. And then um, if you throw on top of that, um, say, asbestos in the pipes and then there's asbestos-related PPE, which is quite heavy, um, you end up with um, a situation which um, involves potentially fatigue but also um, thermo discomfort and also heat stress. 
And so that was a really um, interesting um, mix of hazards for us to investigate. So we're using um, wearable sensors, so smart watches and smart insoles and smart shirts to try and look at um, the extent of the hazard, but then also what happens when we switch out um, different uh, types of PPE. So what happens if we use um, air circulators? Um, what happens if we use ice vests? Can we improve the situation? Um, and so that's um, that was a really interesting project. The wearables, you've mentioned smartwatch and inosols. So the smartwatch and the inosols, what is the difference between the two? What are they doing? So the smartwatch measures movement. And so from that, we can apply an algorithm and um, it's pretty well validated. We can tell when people are awake and when they're sleeping and then also um, the extent of the physical activity that they're doing, whether it's mild, moderate or vigorous. And then um, the insoles measure gait and walking. So what we're interested there is slips and trips, so unobtrusive ways of measuring um, negative impacts of some of these workplace hazards. And then the smart shirts have um, uh, measured breathing and they also measure heart rate. So we can look at um, things like exertion, especially in relation to movement and other things. Wow, that's fascinating. What, what have you found? Or what did you, um, what were some of the things that you learned from that project? Well, we learned um, that um, the the level of heat and thermocomfort experienced by workers is, is heavily dependent on um, the external temperature and and um, the time of day and um, and that uh, things like ice vests and also air circulators as part of the mask made a really big positive difference. Um, and so um, this was really a first step in trying to um, sort of set up this project and find out what we could learn. Um, the other part was um, understanding the, the usability of the sensors in in the field environment and what could we what could we measure and what could we learn from that and what other information would we need to gather from the workplace to be able to interpret the information from those sensors. And so we talk about um, what ecosystem are we putting around the sensors to make sense of the data and to, to make it meaningful and interpretable in the workplace. Okay, because I imagine if you're going to work out whether the, where there's changes in heat that you would obviously need you know, that baseline, wouldn't you? So they'd need to be wearing it for a long time just doing normal things in cooler weather or spring or autumn or whatever the story is, and then you've got the peak of summer so that you can look at the difference between the two. I imagine that's some of it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so some of it was sort of following people through different seasons, but then we also set up a, um, a simulated pipe removal experiment, which was really interesting. And so um, we were able to replicate those conditions in winter when it was cold and rainy, uh, and then in summer when it when it was hot and sunny. And um, then we're able to um, take exactly the same measurements um, with exactly the same behaviours and have a look at the impact of the difference in weather. And so that was really informative. What was the feedback from the users? Because you mentioned PPE and I'm um, obviously, you know, air hoods or air suits and um, ice vests obviously are a little bit bigger and possibly maybe a bit more cumbersome or um, are they in fact? Um, what was the, um, yeah, what were the users saying about it? Well, I think um, this was really driven um, by the workers that we were um, able to work with and they they were saying that, you know, when when they were doing these activities, it was really quite hot and they were interested in what the impact of the, the potential PPE that they could use was 
Um, and so, um, yeah, they were really, really gracious and generous with us in um, performing all these tasks um, while we were following them around and measuring them with all these different things. Um, and um, the response to the to the work has been really positive. And we've already done one, um, you know, small follow-up study, and I'm really hoping that that it leads to more work. So what's better in your research so far, the ice um, vest or the air board or air um, suits? Uh, the design of our research didn't um, allow us to compare them to each other directly, but certainly they might both made a really positive difference in that context. And um, um, and the, the study that we did run showed that they were both very beneficial. So you mentioned pipeline. I imagine that the um, this research, of course, would be applicable in mining and um, so many other areas in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we do a lot of research, um, particularly with the the wearables that measure sleep and wake in all the shift work industries. Um, and so that's, you know, everything from transport to healthcare, um, more recently forestry. So let's talk about that, some of the other projects. Um, and I know you've done a lot of work on fatigue as well. So maybe you could have a um, tell us about some of those projects. Absolutely. Um, so there's um, kind of two areas that I tend to work in in fatigue. They're, they're very closely linked. The first one is um, looking at timing and timing of behaviour. So we sometimes call that chrono behaviour. And we know that um, we've known for a long time that there's a circadian master clock in the brain and that keeps our body rhythms synchronised to the outside, like dark cycles, which is about our circadian rhythms or our daily rhythms. But um, research is is telling us now that that we've actually got clocks all over our bodies, and so they're in our organs, and um, and so that means that while we have this circadian master clock that's really informed by light, we also have these other clocks that are um, much more likely to be informed by other things. Like you can imagine that the liver or the kidneys might be more uh, informed by timing of food, and the the muscles might be more informed by exercise and so um looking at um the, the the synchronicity between all of our circadian clocks so we know from jet lag that um when we get out of sync with the light dark cycles things start to go wrong and so we think that there's um sort of an increased version of that that shift workers would experience and so we're looking at um not just what to eat but when for example night shift workers will eat when they're awake on the night shift and we know that that presents a, a metabolic challenge. Our bodies aren't designed to process food at night. We're more likely to be asleep at that time. And so we think that that might be um, one of the mechanisms that means that night shift workers end up with an increased likelihood of, of things like type 2 diabetes. And so I'm working with colleagues looking at intervention studies and diets um, for shift workers um, that focus not just on what and how much to eat but when to try and keep um, people um, healthy, metabolically speaking, in addition to just looking at weight loss. Actually, that's really interesting. I've been a shift worker in the past and I've worked night shift and um, I never really knew whether when I finished the shift I should be eating breakfast or dinner. Um, yeah. And, yeah, so I can understand that that's a really interesting um, sort of work. Are you still doing some work in that area specifically? Yeah, so just finishing up a large study that's a collaborative study between UNESA and Monash that's looking at um, a randomised controlled trial of three different diets for, for night shift workers. And so those results um, are currently being prepared for publication. So 
um, we'll be able to share them hopefully quite soon, um, which is very exciting. And we'll also do a lot of um, work in um, other sort of shift working industries looking at when people eat and, and the reasons why they eat at different times. So there's another layer, um, not just about being awake and, and having food available. When people are awake through the night, they'll also often choose foods that are of high reward value, so high in fats and sugars. And that tends to um, be rewarding, tends to boost their mood. And also it's often used as a, a mechanism for coming together and, and improving social cohesion. And so what's interesting is if you come in from a purely dietary perspective, um, you might just say, well, everybody cut the cake at night and have some carrot sticks, but you also need to consider the losses of that. So what are the functions that that food is serving at night? What would be the losses of removing that food at night? Um, because those things are important to consider so that you can make sustainable change because these are chronic conditions and so these are behaviours that, that repeat over time. And then your research at the um, looking at the amount of energy that's required in the work is interesting then because it really depends on what the night shift worker is doing, doesn't it? I mean, if you're in um, in rail and it's a more sedentary role, then, um, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that vigilance is more important, um, but physical exercise isn't necessarily part of the job. But then, say, in mining, you've got um, maintenance plant operators and stuff like that who are doing a lot of heavy work at night time and so therefore their dietary needs would be different. That's very interesting research. I was looking at some of the um, things that you've worked on previously and you talk about um, behaviour coping strategies in terms of fatigue and sleep loss. You talk about behaviour coping strategies. I just wondered if you could talk about um, some of the projects that you've worked on there and what the outcomes of those projects were. Absolutely. So we did a um, a, fo a focus project on this with um, nursing and midwifery um, and we've also done a bigger project recently um, with forestry so focusing on the green triangle but also um, with operators nationally looking at fatigue risk management part of that is um, compensatory strategies and so um, in both those projects we identified strategies at the individual level that that people use and some of those are very likely to be very helpful. Some of those from the literature um, are not likely to actually have much of an impact and others might actually be harmful. And so part of our work was aligning the strategies with the literature and kind of myth-busting um, some of the strategies and, um, and promoting the ones that are, that are very likely to be helpful. Um, the other bonus about looking for, at people's individual strategies is that they, they work in the context of their workplace and so it's not, um, you know, someone sitting in, an, in a university saying we well, should nap before your night shift um, because that might not be possible for you. You might live next to a, a noisy school or you, you you might not be a napper. So it's about looking at, you know, a, a menu of strategies that could possibly be um, useful. And so, you know, those are around sleep extension, napping, sleeping on the weekends, you know, having a, a sleep environment that's cool, dark and quiet. Um, having shift worker sleeping signs, not having tech in the bedroom. Um, there's a lot of strategies around um, teamwork at work, so looking out for your tired colleagues, um, being able to say that you're fatigued, getting the first coffee break if that's you, um, maybe having some um, double-checking going on with your colleagues if you're feeling particularly tired and you need to do something like um, drug calculations or other things in healthcare, for example. 
Um, and then there's strategies, um, you know, at the, at the home level. So, um, having discussions with partners and family about how you feel coming home from a night shift. And we see different examples where some people say, you know, I just, I just don't want to talk to anybody for a bit. Um, uh, and others where they, you know, they really need to spend extra time with their pets to make them feel better. Um, and so there's these, um, uh, strategies around sleep, around work, around social interaction, um, and also around diet. So some people will avoid eating during the night, um, naturally because they don't feel that well, um, when they consume food at that time. Others will use strategies around reward to make them feel better for being on shift. And so looking at those strategies in context, there's a lot of strategies around driving. So, um, do you have a co- cup of coffee before you drive home, which is probably going to help, um, uh, notwithstanding the potential impact on your sleep when you get there, but then also, um, you know, do you wind down the windows to or turn up the radio to help you remain awake while you're driving? It's not much evidence that that actually helps. So sort of that suite. And then we also look at the um, the systems level. So what is it about the unit, the systems in the, in the organisation that is facilitating or making those strategies difficult. That's exactly where I was I was thinking. So, what are some of the strategies that organisations um, can put in place to assist with these problems with fatigue and night shift? Well, I guess um, some of them are around developing a, a safety culture. That's you know a just culture and a reporting culture where people feel um, that they can disclose when they feel tired because then that unlocks a lot of possibilities around teamwork and helping each other. Um, also, obviously, um, fatigue risk management systems that um, support, um, you know, use of countermeasures. Um, and then um, the availability of, um, you know, simple things like the availability of different foods um, on night shift. So you might be working in a, in a um, hospital and, you, you know, you might have access to vending machines or even a cafeteria at night. And I've seen some great work um, in a particular hospital I visited where they um, had changed their canteen to have um, uh, things that were on offer that were of high reward value, so cakes, but made with low sugar. So they were covering off on them, making people feel good at night, but they were um, sort of maintaining, you know, that that health uh, in, in the food that was available. And that was really successful and, and, you know, made people feel really good and also changed their eating habits at night. So yeah, lots of different strategies. Actually, that sounds like a great idea. Um, you know, my days in um, working in hospitals and night shift, <laughs> you were really restricted to toasted sandwiches, um, and they weren't always that crash hot either. When there's 24-hour operations, apart from health, if you move outside of health into, say, manufacturing or um, other areas, uh, I'm assuming that some of these cafes are available at night time where they could serve um, reasonable foods. Is that what you're finding, or do you find that really it's um, – it's minimal. Yeah, I think that's a really good question, and, and it depends on the on the work environment. So, if if you're um, flight crew on an aeroplane, you're going to be really restricted in in what's available on the plane. Um, if you're um, working uh, in a mine, you might have a mess, but then you might actually go out into the mine for twelve hours, and you might actually have to pack a lunchbox and take that with you. Um, so that might limit the kinds of things you can take, and also just little things like the way that the insides of uh, say cranes or um, uh, harvesting machines are designed. Do they have a cup holder? So can you put a can you put a thermos of coffee in there or not? Um, is there a fridge that is accessible so that you can have 
cold things or things that need to stay cold. And, um, yeah, all of those kinds of considerations really impact on what shift workers um, can access and then um, how um, they can consume um, food across across the shift. Okay. Some of your other work that you've talked about is uh, sleep inertia because one of the things on shift work, I, as a shift worker, as I was saying, one of the things I do remember is at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning there was that that big dip where you needed to kind of nod off. And so you'd be sitting at a desk or something with your head in your hands hoping that you could get away with a quick kip. But, but you talk about sleep inertia and the effects of then waking up and having to do critical thinking afterwards. And um, let's talk about that for a moment. What have you found in your research? So I've been lucky enough to work with um, uh, some really great PhD students over the years, including one called Cassie Hilditch, who's now um, at NASA, and she did uh, her thesis on sleep inertia. And um, so some of the studies, I guess, that have influenced my thinking were conducted by her. Um, and so essentially, if if you're... Um, if you're going to have a nap, um, if you're going to nap for longer than about 20 minutes, then you're probably exposing yourself to that to that rogginess on waking, and that's usually associated with getting into a deeper stage of sleep. Um, and when that happens, you usually need to give yourself at least 15 minutes, but sometimes longer depending on the time of day and how severe it is to be able to restore those cognitive skills. Um, the other thing you can do is um, is look at, you know, pairing the nap with a countermeasure. So you can look at the length of the nap. So if you're going to have a longer nap, it's good to think about adding a period of, of um, sleep inertia recovery after before you rush back into work, particularly if you're going to drive or do something safety critical. But then you can shorten the nap so you're less likely to go into deep sleep and less likely to have the effects of sleep inertia. You can also have a, a coffee before your short nap. Um, and then the effects of the caffeine should um, kick in uh, after the nap. And so that also helps to reduce the impact of sleep inertia. Sometimes that's called a caffeine nap or a power nap. The other PhD student um, who worked on that, um, Stephanie Centifanti, she's another really great, um, great author. So if, you, if you're looking for studies, um, look up Cassie and, and Steph. Yeah, so there's there's ways of um, of looking at um, applying a nap in a workplace while you're mitigating the the potential impacts of that sleep inertia, so you stay safe and get the benefit of the nap as well. So twenty minutes is the is the period where you go into the deep sleep. So those ten minutes sort of naps that you have um, when you when you're doing a quick pickup on the side of the road or wherever that is, that they don't um, they're less likely to give you sleep inertia. Is that they correct? Are, yeah, that is correct. So yeah, ten to twenty minutes less likely to have sleep inertia. Um, but if you're going longer than 20 minutes, especially longer than 30 minutes, then you probably need to build in some recovery time while you wake up. I know in your research you mentioned that that's particularly difficult for on-call workers, especially um, if you think of um, interns or residents or, um, in the health area where they they are sleeping, they're allowed to sleep, obviously in firemen are allowed to sleep, and then they're, they're called to suddenly respond. Um there's no time then for them to have the 30-minute um, introduction back into work. Is there anything else that can be done in that? Well, I think that um, that the workers, if you if you talk to them in those kind of sort of emergency response situations, make the argument about um, the adrenaline they experience knowing that there's going to be an emergency that they're immediately responding to. Um, and we don't have, uh, you know, data from studies to show that that's the case, but you know, it makes sense 
that um, if if you're thinking of something as an emergency, then you you know you'll be highly activated. So that might assist. Um, but yeah, certainly there's going to be cases where maybe you're not thinking about it as an emergency. I'm just thinking about if someone is, um, say, a resident sleeping overnight and they get called to make a medical decision. Um, then there's other, you know, countermeasures that people put in place to try and make sure that the decisions that they're making on the phone are okay. And so someone will have deals with um, with the, the people that are calling them. So if, if I say something that doesn't make sense, you can ask me a question twice or, um, you know, just maybe um, make a little bit of conversation first and then, then ask the absolutely critical question. So people are really good at working out um, what their safe limits are and, and some of those um, ways of just altering behaviour slightly can, can make a big difference to safety. And this is where some of the non-technical skills work comes in as well, don't they, where uh, teams know that someone's been asleep and if they know that the effects of sleep can have a, um, a detrimental effect on their ability to, to critically think that there are ways to obviously double-check them, which is what you're suggesting. Yeah, absolutely. And then it also goes back to having a, a as open a culture as possible where people feel like they can self-identify if they're sleepy, um, as well as having that really strong signal um, where people know that you've just had a nap. You've brought up some really interesting things, the idea of um, just culture and a safety culture where people are allowed to sleep. I mean, yeah, it wasn't allowed in the past and, and um there was this apparent need to remain vigilant at all times, which, of course, um, has changed. But with it, of course, comes the need to understand the effects of the same. That's for some really interesting research there. Um, what were just some of the biggest challenges for you or what are some of the biggest challenges for you in this type of research? Uh, I think the biggest challenge is probably um, when you're working with the industry on sort of bigger questions and they're multidisciplinary um, kind of questions, then you've got, uh, people coming together that need to be there and need to have a voice for this to work, but um, they're all speaking different languages. We tend to um, be really um, closely influenced by um, the language of our discipline or the language of our industry. And so um, making sure that um, there's enough time and enough interaction in a project to develop a shared language around the project, a shared understanding of, of the importance of the project and also um, shared outcomes for the project is, is really, really important. And the other thing that I've found that is, is really important in that is um, having time uh, and, um, and energy for researchers to be embedded into the workplace so that they can understand what it feels like to be in the workplace as well as understanding the ins, ins and outs of the, of the job role. Um, and that that is actually one of my favourite bits of my job is being able to go to workplaces all over Australia and, and they're so unique and varied and, and for people to very generously share with me what it's like for them in their work lives. And I really love that. Really pleased that you're doing the research. You know, they're really happy that someone's finally listening to them, that someone's trying to make their workplace a, a more comfortable place to be. Most of the time. Um, but, you know, not always with with change and with um, with. Uh, safety, especially when we're talking about things like wearables, there's there's issues that come along with that, like perceptions around um, surveillance and and other things, um, and it, and those kind of discussions really um, sort of open up room for thought about the level of trust in the organisation and um, and the level of readiness for certain interventions and 
Um, but, um, yeah, it is an important space and it's, it's super rewarding. Um, Jill, I'm really excited that you'll be one of the keynote speakers at the Human Factors and Ergonomics Societies Conference in November this year, and I'm wondering what you might be talking about. Well, the themes of the conference are value and vitality, so I thought I might talk about my experience in um, fatigue risk management systems research, which really in some ways has felt like a a journey from um, focusing more on value, so looking at the impact of fatigue in the workplace and and things like in the train driving studies, looking at how much uh, extra it costs to have a fatigued train driver driving the train because they use more fuel. So that focus on value and economy, um, where now um, the fatigue risk management systems approaches are really looking at more broadly the impacts on health and some of these chronic health conditions, which means that um, sort of the scope of fatigue risk management systems and the scope of the impact for the individual and their families is is really um, being conceptualised much more broadly and I guess focusing more on vitality. So I think for me it's a bit of a journey from value to more of a vitality focus and I'll talk about, you know, examples from different industries, especially ones where I've been lucky enough to do sort of industry-led embedded multidisciplinary research and and then also try and give some examples from different industries. So um, probably rail and healthcare and forestry and utilities. I'm really looking forward to hearing um, about all of those. Thank you so much for your time today, Gillian. Thanks, Sharon. It was wonderful. The HFESA conference is a hybrid event with an application that will enable you to listen to the papers for up to two years after the event. Don't forget to register now at ergonomics.org.au. Thanks for joining us at the Human Factors and Ergonomics Hub, brought to you by the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society of Australia, where human-centred design really matters. If you like this podcast, make us your favourite in your podcast app. We look forward to chatting with you next time.